Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Oh, stomping, Jen. You okay over there? I was clearing my throat vigorously. <laughs> with having the, like a full-on like... With the microphone muted. Thank uh, God. Nobody needs to hear that. Good grief. <laughs> it was something else to behold. I'm, I'm glad you can hold witness to it. Um, so our listeners don't have to. Well, listen, I'm excited for this episode. Me too. We're talking to an inspiring human being, Jenna Schwartz. True. Um, I think the best way I can think of right now to describe her is as a writer, a one-to-one coach, a creativity kindler and fire starter, and a lover of humanity. But we're going to let Jenna talk more about who she is right on the other side of the music. Yep. Is that good? Sounds great. All right, let's do it. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. All right, Stomping Jen, I love this music so much. I can't imagine why. Yeah, it was um, the new ice cream theme song written by the Wu-Tang Clan's RZA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyways, I just thought I would mention that. But we aren't here to discuss this ice cream theme song. We're here to talk to Jenna Schwartz. <laughs> and I I warned Jenna before our conversation started that we would be interrupted by multiple cats. And two of our podcasts have just leaped upon the of table. Of course they did. But <clears throat> without further ado, let's say hi to Jenna. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, I know I took some liberties in describing um, who I thought you were based on looking at your website material. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of tell us in your own words um, what you're up to. Great. Thank you. Sure. I liked your description. Um, Creativity Kindler is fun. I haven't heard that before. Um, And I have to say the soft serve thing is really fantastic and i i have i lived in vermont for 12 years before i moved back to amherst and soft serve ice cream is called a creamy in vermont oh i didn't know that these are a very big deal in vermont and Mm. uh, were a very big part of my life for a long time so it's a good name um so all of that is true what you what you said and i guess in my own words i would definitely agree with that and say i'm a writer Um, that's probably the through line in my life. The one thing that I can trace back to pretty early on, um, pretty much, 
pretty much as early as I can remember. Um, you know, when I was a kid, the only thing I really remember wanting to be when I grew up was a poet. And uh, also a diplomat, maybe, or an international multilingual spy. But, <laughs> but writer was in there. Um, and it took a long time to find my way to really integrating that and making that central to my work in the world. Um, so that's that sort of permeates everything that, that I do and everything that I am. Yeah, I think... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I find it really interesting um, that you mentioned that you wanted to be a diplomat because on your webpage, you describe yourself as a, a lover of words and humanity. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of better skill sets for a diplomat to have than um, loving words and being good with people. Mm-hmm. Am I right, Stomping Jen? It's true. Yeah, so, I want to I start with words. What do you... What do you love about words so much? What attracts you to them? Ah, that's a great question. And you would think it would be obvious. And again, I'm thinking back to being young and how I was so into language, even as a kid, and music too, and foreign languages. And, you know, I think some of it is actually just sound and like the fun of that and rhythm. You know, there's so much musicality in words and and so much nuance and meaning. And, you know, I love etymology and kind of getting at the roots of things. And uh, I guess it really does connect too with humanity and, you know, connecting with people because how we communicate is so important Mm -hmm. and the words we use are so important and language matters so much in that way. So I think that's, I think I love the power words can have. I love the beauty words can have. I love the, um, sort of mischief words can have um, and really the impact in the world, you mm-hmm. know, words can have as well as the ability to express sort of one's inner landscape, you know, like how to translate that. How, how can we translate our inner landscape in a way that someone else can actually recognize it? And I think, I think words are kind of magic in that way. When you think about the inner landscape what does that mean to you um, as a person and a writer? Because I love that term. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, I okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote um, Samuel Coleridge. I, I bought this necklace for myself when I was in my early twenties. It was at the Artisan Gallery in Northampton, and I saw it, and I and I was like, I have to have this necklace, and it was really expensive. For me, I mean, it would be expensive even now, but especially as like a 22 year old waitressing and I like saved all my tip money. And this necklace was a block of silver, like really pretty heavy. And it had this teeny, teeny, tiny script on it, like so small. You could, it was amazing how much, you know, was fit on this little block of silver. And it said, he looked into his own soul with a telescope And what seemed all irregular, he saw and showed to be beautiful constellations. And he added to the landscape. No. And he added to the, oh, I knew this would happen. (laughs) He added to the consciousness hidden worlds within worlds. That was the the last part. So I think we all contain worlds within worlds within ourselves. Um, So that inner landscape to me is like, of the contours of all of our memories, all of our fears, all the parts of ourselves that we keep hidden or, you know, don't share with the world. 
Um, so yeah, that's and, some and, of what that means to me. And I would imagine what you talk about is your love of humanity is helping people discover maybe those worlds or um, being able to interact with those worlds as a as a writing coach and a one-to-one coach. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I help people discover them per se, because I, I don't, I don't see myself as having the power to do that, Mm -hmm. but I definitely see myself as holding space or, or making room for people, encouraging people to make room for themselves to do that and to both turn, like learn how to kind of tune in and listen and, and tap into what's within oneself. But then the other piece of it is recognizing how the external world that we live in, you know, influence and shape that. So there's an interplay always between the inner and outer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, about that, um, the external world. Um so, in reading your website, one of the things that was really apparent to me, right, is that we live in a society where there are these expectations um, for outcomes and products constantly upon us all that interfere with and kind of stand in the way of our creative processes, Um and the way we express ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about that and why kind of what you do is so important to help people? Yeah, I think the, um, I think that pressure to produce and have something to kind of to show for yourself and uh, the focus on, you know, like you, I work with so many people where, you know, you'll talk about the books on your shelf and and not see what went into that book becoming a book, for example. You know, you just see the final product, you see the bestseller list, you know, you see it's a, we live in such a celebrity driven culture too. Um, and there, it can really erode a person's confidence or willingness to actually know that the practice itself of being creative is worthwhile, even if someone doesn't have any goal of, you know, creating something that the world will ever see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think capitalism too is really problematic um, in a lot of ways because, you know, we are trained, like whether we know it or not, if, if you grow up in this country and in this culture, we're really trained to, um, figure out how to make money off of, you know, whatever it is that we are good at or we love to do. And so if something's not making money and that's not uncommon for creative types of people, um, although there's also the myth of, you know, the starving artist, which is sort of a separate branch on this conversation, I guess. But, you know, if it's, if something's not making money, then it can be easy to think that, you know, in that paradigm that you're somehow failing. And I really think it's bullshit. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also think the the pressure that a lot of us find ourselves under in ending up in like nine to five, yeah. like traditional jobs, 
and even beyond nine to five, like most people I know who are in uh, traditional jobs when in working for somebody else, they're, they're working, you know, 50, 60 hour weeks and, you know, whatever little time they have left over, they have a really hard time applying towards like being creative or expressing themselves in some way. I think, I think that's a really sad thing. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, I, you know, I've gone in and out over the, you know, over the course of my adult life of sort of traditional 40 hour a week jobs and self-employment, you know, it's been, I've done, I've done kind of this back and forth a few times with that. And when you're working full time somewhere else, I mean, the, the, (laughs) I'm just laughing because like the number of blog posts I probably wrote, you know, on the sly or whatever, like in, in, you know, it was like my creativity was always kind of like either leaking out or I, but it felt like a thing I had to hide or I had to kind of squeeze in. I always felt like I was sort of fitting it around the margins of my life rather than it being something central to my life. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's also the reality of having to make a living. Mm -hmm. Right. Stomping Jen um, had her own journey here uh, from working for other people to being self-employed. I did. You did. Did you, you, do you want me to talk about it? I'm curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that in terms of... I'm more thinking about when I'm, you know, as I'm listening to this conversation unfold, I'm more thinking about my own personal creativity journey that takes the backseat all the time for me. Mm. Um, you know, doing... Um, yeah doing artwork as like the absolute last priority in my day-to-day life. Yeah. Oh no. Right now you mean? Yeah. I mean, I haven't done art in like months and months Mm -hmm. and months and months and months and months. Mostly because I've been living in existential dread and. (laughs) Yeah. So I know what I was going to ask Jenna. Um, There you go. What was it? Was it a scary thing to make that leap into self-employment? Yeah. It was terrifying. I mean, it was really, really fucking terrifying. Um, I've made the leap a few times. I mentioned that. And each time has been at a very, very different sort of juncture in my life. So the first time I started, I started my coaching business originally in 2003. And I had a nine-month-old. And I was like really on fire about it. I had just finished my coaching training and um, that, that leap was scary, but I don't remember being terrifying. Like it was really exciting. Um, the more recent leap into self-employment was in the summer of 2015. And it was, um, I'd been doing this work, you know, I'd been leading writing groups actually as a kind of a side gig and working full time mm-hmm. um, for about nine months at that point. And my wife got really sick, um, which is part of why I started leading writing groups in the first place was like to bring in a little extra money. And also, cause I was feeling like really isolated and kind of scared cause she was sick and we didn't know why. Um, and we were newly married and it was like winter and you know mm-hmm. how winter is here too. Like I was just feeling isolated and kind of cut off, which is, uh, what led me to leading writing groups, but then I was doing it and working full time And after that initial period, like December till summer, 
taking that leap kind of became like, I often have thought of the phrase um, necessity as the mother of all invention, you know, that it was like, I, I feel like in some ways, I, I wouldn't say I don't, I didn't have a choice because obviously I had a choice. Um, but I had taken 12 weeks of unpaid medical leave that summer to take care of my wife, basically full time. Like she was really, mm-hmm. um, she was bedridden and had been hospitalized and, you know, was pretty much like she was no longer able to work. And so at the end of that medical leave, like the whole medical leave, the whole 12 weeks, it was like, I started with six weeks of leave and then I extended it and I used the whole FEMLA, the family medical leave act, you know, the, the full amount that's a lot that's allowed to take. And as I remember those last weeks, kind of, as they went by this creeping kind of, you know, pressure of like, I've got to make a decision, you know, and I knew in my heart of hearts that I wasn't going to go back, um, that I had to just kind of go for it. But yeah, it was very scary. It was scary for a lot of reasons. You know, of course the money is always sort of the presenting. I think the money is always the presenting fear and it's a real fear. It's not just like an illusion, you know, (laughs) like eating is not an illusion, you know, (laughs) paying your rent. Like those are actual things. Um, And figuring out health insurance and navigating like, you know, those, all those things. Um, Taxes. Yeah. And then, you know, also navigating other people's fears and opinions. is like, you know, a thing that comes into play too. Um, you know, there's always going to be the people who are like, go for it, but they don't necessarily have anything, you know, at stake. And then there's also the people who are like, oh my God, you're going to quit your job, you know, and, and kind of projecting their fears about it. And so, you know, one of the things, even, even though she was really sick at the time, I feel like my wife was always like completely on, like, she was like, we're going to be fine. Like it's. I don't even know how to describe, like, she just believed so completely that we would be okay. And also that like this, that my work was gonna, was gonna keep growing. And so far, like spit over my shoulder, you know, I'm like superstitious, (laughs) but, uh, you know, so far that's been true. And, um, yeah, it's great when you have a supportive partner, uh, on that journey with you. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, it definitely makes a difference. But yeah, the fear, I mean, and the fear didn't end with like quitting my job, you know, it's like, yeah, I still have waves of that, but it's a little less intense than it was earlier on. But, you know, she would probably tell you like, I don't know what the intervals are, like every month, every three months, you know, I'd have like a complete meltdown (laughs) of, you know, fear and, you know, are we going to be okay? And what if this? And, And then over time, I think you start to just develop more resilience, maybe, you know, like not only are things okay, but also like, if they're not, we'll figure it out. Yeah. That's something I've observed in, in stomping Jen in her kind of self-employment journey. You know, mm-hmm. there's been points where she's had clients bringing in the, like 700 a month and they go away. And I'm like over there in the corner, curled up in a ball, completely losing my shit. And she's like, Oh, that just happens. That's what this is that's what this is like there'll be something else down the road Mm -hmm. you know and it's that uh resilience is is a great is a great word for it um and i'm wondering um so as you as you made that transition um into your own business um 
and you began to develop the kind of your philosophy about one-to-one coaching. Um, did anything in that process inform your coaching philosophy? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think all along, you know, I'm someone who, you know, I, I think in general, we sort of teach what we have to learn, or at least that's not uncommon. And that's definitely been true for me that I, all of my personal experience and, and the way I coach and, and my philosophies around working with people are, are pretty inseparable. And I think one of the biggest things I would say applies from my own experience to how I work with people is something about not having to have, I mean, this is true of anything, like whether it's a big life decision or a creative project, but something about starting, you know, like on my website, you know, my little tagline is start. It used to be start, keep going, be good to yourself. And I changed the going to growing, which I can talk about if you want, but the starting, you know, I think is a big part of it because you can't wait, or at least in my experience was like, if I had waited till I had everything mapped out, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Like it's just not how stuff works. Like you have to kind of like just start something and then be open to, you know, inevitable changes to what you thought you were going to be doing and how it goes and, Mm -hmm. you know, new ideas and clients coming and going and like stomping Jen, you know, losing a $700, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think it definitely applies to how I coach people in terms of encouraging folks not to get kind of um stuck in that place of oh my god you know if i don't know everything then i kind of can't move you know yeah and and i love your tagline and i I had this flag to ask you about so could you tell us a little bit about changing your tagline from Mm -hmm. start keep going be good to yourself to start keep growing be good to yourself Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I think I, I wrote a blog post about it. Um, and it's funny, I was saying to my daughter before, before tonight's conversation with you that I'm so much more at home communicating and writing than I am speaking. Like that's, you know, that's kind of my element. So it'll be interesting to see what I can remember from like, why did I make that decision? But what I know is that it had to do with the energy of keep going which is a great phrase. Like, I love that. Keep going. Like, right. It's, it's encouraging. It's positive. And at the same time, it's like, it can have an element of pushing, like Mm -hmm. keep going no matter what, keep going at all costs. Like, you know, um, and I, I, I kind of felt like it's, it was missing some nuance and some depth or dimension of like, what is the point of keeping going? (laughs) Like, it's not just keep going to keep going. It's like that there's something about really developing an awareness around why you're keeping going and Mm -hmm. how you're growing as you do that. Um, And to me, growth is kind of the point, like of all of this, you know, like if we're not growing, then, then I would want to step back and be like, well, then what, you know, why are, why am I doing something or, Um, Why am I keeping going? So that was kind of where that came from. And it also came from me, I think, increasingly uh, kind of more overtly and explicitly and consciously really 
stripping away like the conditioning, you know, it goes back to the outcomes thing too, but, you know, just kind of the, the social conditioning of what's expected of us and wanting, mm-hmm. just wanting also people to kind of bring awareness to that in their own lives. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Sorry. I used to have a, I'd never had like a full tagline for anything I've ever done, but I used to yell at people. I used to do these like networking luncheons in the middle of the day. And I like used to yell at people, go, do, be, like, just go. And my friend would picked up on the fact that I would say this all the time to people. And he would yell at me back. Go, do, go, be. Do be. Yeah. yeah. And it reminds me, your tagline reminds me of that in, in some ways. I mean, yours is much more eloquent. Obviously. I love that though. I love those like, that sort of staccato, like just one syllable. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. powerful. Yeah. And I love that you had B in there too. Like B is a thing, yeah. you know, cause that's the other thing is like, we're so doing oriented mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of value placed on being. And we miss, we miss a whole, we miss out on so much because of that. Yeah. yeah and there's a meta-ness to, to being open to changing your time, your tagline right? In the way that you did that I absolutely love, right? Like reflecting on it, you know, at the start of the new year and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to make an adjustment here to my tagline, you know, because I think a lot of people would think of a time, a tagline is something that's um, indelible, right? It can't change, but I love that you changed it. Yeah. And I feel like not being open to change, like if anything, that scares me. You know, because I feel like if you're not, if I'm not open to change, then I'm going to, what that implies is that I'm probably um, scared, you know, that, well, if things are, seem to be working, then I better keep doing everything exactly the way I'm doing it now. Um, And I think it's important to kind of stay like, yeah, I guess to challenge myself, you know, in the same ways that I would, that I would challenge anyone else. So I try to walk my talk. The tagline thing, you know, it makes me think about my, when I first started coaching, I was in my, I think I was maybe 29 or 30 and I had this new baby. Um, And my tagline was from busy to balanced. And Mm. I was like focused on working with, with moms and women at the time. And I laugh at it now because I'm like, I feel like I didn't know anything, you know, like about (laughs) And also like, even now I'm like balanced, like, what is that? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I don't even know if I, if I believe that balance is a thing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think stuff like that can be fun. Cause it's a way of kind of getting at the essence of like what your purpose or your intention is with your work. Do you have any particular thoughts? I want to dive a little bit into about, um, what brings people to you, like this need to express themselves creatively. And I think in writing in particular, um, you know, why, why do we feel this need to do this thing, this form of creative expression? Mm. Do you have any thoughts about that? Hmm. We all have stories. Yeah. And I think, you know, I went to a, a workshop yesterday about activism for introverts led by a really fabulous person named Omkari Williams. And she she shared this quote with us, um, story is the shortest distance between two people. And I think that part of why that's such 
a strong drive, even for people who aren't quote unquote writers, which we could talk about, um, you know, what that means. But I think expressing and writing and sharing our stories is a way of seeing ourselves first and foremost, you know, validating our experience, like figuring out, you know, not even figuring out, but just naming, naming who we are, what happened to us or, you know, an experience, but then sharing that is the other component of it, it at least in, when I lead writing groups. And there's something so powerful about um, being seen, you know, I think that we really crave that as humans. I think we need it um, to just be witnessed and seen and, and then realize that you know, so it's the whole me too thing, you know, it's like when you read something and you're like, oh, me too. And so often the thing that we think makes us different or, you know, where we feel alone or isolated in our experience very, very rarely really is, you know, like usually there's a point of connection, like someone else will say, oh, me too. And yeah, so I think there's something about that. Something you said is sticking with me and I need to ask you about it. Um, you said writing can be a way for us to confront or see ourselves. Do you find often in your work that people embark on a writing journey and they discover something about themselves that maybe they didn't know or that is a surprise to them? Hmm. Hmm. Huh. That's a great question. I'm really, I'm just sitting with it. Yes, I do think that happens and I've seen that happen. And I also think maybe even more sort of frequently is that writing allows a person to kind of make more room for what they already knew was there. Mm. Yeah. but had maybe kind of had maybe, uh, you know, minimized or, or diminished in some way. So I think the writing is a way of like letting that breathe. Yeah. Yeah. It's I will say, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it strikes me as we're talking about this, like as a, the difference between like a writer sharing a story and like, mm -hmm somebody like Sawtooth Frank that decided to start a podcast yeah. <laughs> and like we talk about stuff and we tell stories and I feel like we're more oral storytellers because like and you just mentioned like people who can't write right like I feel like I I'm terrible I'm much better having a conversation with somebody one-on-one -on -one than sitting down like writing out my thoughts sometimes hmm. sounds like you might need a writing coach <laughs> Well, luckily I work with spreadsheets, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, both are forms of stories, that's right? It's true. There's numbers, stories and numbers. True. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's totally true. Mm -hmm. I love that, actually. I love that numbers tell stories. And I actually really love numbers. Like, I, I think that's true. I think story can take a lot of forms. Mm -hmm. And I have so much, like, reverence for oral traditions and for that form of storytelling. Um, and I, I mean... 
my kids make fun of me because I'm actually a really terrible storyteller. <laughs> like I just, I trip over the, like, I forget the details. Like I'm just, it's not my forte at all. Um, and for whatever reason, like writing comes pretty naturally to me. So I have so much respect for people who can tell a good story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I, I don't, and just to your points, don't be Jen, I don't think I'm one of those people. What's interesting, um, about this, Jenna, is I used to be a professional writer. I was a, I was a writer for 10 years in the pharmaceutical industry, and I always wanted to be a writer, like, when I was a kid. And, <laughs> like, doing, doing that for work, though, um, and doing it in that industry for so long, it just, it, I don't want to, I want to, I want to be kind to myself. I'm thinking about your the advice all over your website about being kind to yourself, and it it's made it, it changed it changed what writing is for me, having done it like that for that amount of time and under like those conditions. Yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That is a very different kind of writing. Like, and you know, I I sometimes you know I'll work with people or hear from folks who write for work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's like corporate writing like that or copy or, you know, grant writing, fundraising, you know, and it's like such a different, like, yes, it's writing, um, but it's a very different thing than the kind of writing that I, that I mostly do with people. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons I brought that up to share um, is because even in that environment, right, um, and that type of writing is not something I had to approach alone right? I had a team around me. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is why I think so many people, when they think about writing, whether it's um, a collection of poems or a novel or something else that they have to embark on such a thing alone, and that they can't get help from a writing coach or a writing group or something like that. Um, Do you have any thoughts about why so many people see that is it like a solely um, a an individualistic journey. creative process versus one that can mm. actually benefit from input from somebody like yourself? Mm. I can imagine. I, I could imagine a lot of different reasons, I guess. I mean, writing is solitary, you know, I mean, even if you're in a, in a group, you know, even if you're in a room with people, everyone's writing by themselves, you know? So it's like, I think, if the question is why would someone feel like they needed to have that be, you know, a solitary pursuit, you know, I mean, one reason could be to kind of in a way, keep out outside. Like, I think there can be something very positive about that depending on what you're working on. You know, like if you're like I, someone I'm close to is writing a novel and only one or two people have seen any of it because it's not ready. Like it's sort of not, it's a little like needs protection, you know, it's like still in the nest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, if you start inviting all kinds of feedback and people's, you know, suggestions and stuff that could be, that could kind of derail your own process. Um, So in that sense, sometimes I think it is actually necessary to do the work alone. Um, At the same time, like, there's something really beautiful that can happen in a, in a supportive collaborative environment, you know, um, yeah. with, 
Yeah. With clear guidelines too, about like what the expectations are, you know, what, Mm. what, what, like, I don't tell someone like, you should do this, you should do that. You know, it's much more about space for them to ask those questions themselves about what, maybe what they're doing or what needs to happen next. Yeah. And just one of the things I wanted to share, like this popping into my mind, and I think I've mentioned this before, like after working with the same editor for like five years, we began to develop this symbiotic relationship. Like she, it's like she knew my mind. And sometimes as I was sitting there writing, I'd be like, oh, I know what, I know what so-and-so is going to say about this. If I do it this way, I better not. Like, it just, it would. So you would write to adapt to what you knew she would edit. um, In that context, yes. But I think the larger point I'm trying to make was that, like, it was, there was this creative symbiosis Mm -hmm. that we had Mm -hmm. in a way um, that wasn't always constraining or limiting, Mm -hmm. I guess. And, like, I very much benefited Mm -hmm. from this um, relationship we developed this melding of the minds in a way she got to know me like and how Uh I thought right and like Uh how I put stuff together it was just really interesting to have that like um because um like you're saying Jenna uh, you know it isn't in writing is an individualistic uh, creative effort on on one front but um, when you begin to engage other people yeah at some point in the process um it gets interesting. Yeah, I guess. and when there's trust, you know, yeah. I mean, what I I love that I love that story of yours because it's like it speaks to there being. It sounds to me like there was trust in the relationship you had that developed over time with this person. Um, yeah, yeah, it makes me think about a client I have who works. She's the executive director of a nonprofit, and so she has to write the fundraising letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she sometimes sends me like her draft. And I, I'm very mindful of like not wanting to, like, it's still got to, it's still her writing, right? It's still right. her voice. But I think over the course of doing this with her multiple times now, there's, there is some of that kind of, um, that flow, you know, that back and forth where I, I know what she sounds like. And so there's a way in which it's more like helping to kind of like, even bring out, like help her bring out even more you know, her own voice. And then she trusts that I'm not going to, you know, just kind of Mm -hmm. slash and burn, you know, her draft or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about embarking on that journey. And one of the things you, you say on your, your website is that it takes intention to reclaim your life and creativity. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means? Um, Yeah, to me, part of what that means is really um, defining, you know, really taking the time to to kind of start to define what you want, what role you want that to play in your life and and define your own terms of success. So it kind of goes along with other stuff that we've we've talked about um, in terms of you know, I think being intentional in general, you know, makes a big difference. It's like the opposite of autopilot or the opposite of just kind of not questioning, um, you know, what some of your habitual thinking is around something. So you might think like, oh, I'm not really that creative or, 
you know, look at other people and think like, oh, well, they're obviously creative because they're a real artist or a real writer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the intentionality, like when I say reclaim, honestly, I think we're all creative. Um, Like, I don't really buy that, you know, that there's, that there's like, that creativity is only in the domain of, of people who are actively, you know, working as, as artists or novelists or whatever, you know, I feel like we're all inherently creative. So reclaiming that is kind of a chance to look at like where, where else in your life is creativity, you know, like it might not be anything with the arts or with writing at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be about, it might be about cooking. It might be about, you know, how you create the space in your home or the music playlists you make, you know, that no one else ever going to hear, you know, I mean, there's so many ways I think to engage in being creative. Mm -hmm. Um, you've also, I think you also, and I think you mentioned it here a little bit, um, but you definitely talk about it on your, on your website that you believe writing is a sacred act that can change the world. Um, can you just expand upon that a little bit more? Cause I think that's a really important idea. Mm, it's interesting hearing it like in your, you know, reflected back kind of in your, in your voice. I'm like, wow, that's kind of a lofty statement to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the sacred part. I think it is. I think the sacred part is, is, is connected to stuff we've talked about where it's, where when you really value your own, your own experience, your own voice, your own stories, um, it creates more empathy for one thing, you know, and so I think it creates more self-compassion potentially, and then also empathy for others. And, um, and I think that actually goes some way towards change in the world. Um, when we, when we can do that. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about like, and the, the word sacred is obviously, you know, sort of has connotations of spirituality or religion and, um, and I think that probably that statement reflects to some of my relationship to those things where I, I don't see it as separate, you know, like, it, like we often relate to that, to the, to that realm as separate from our everyday life. And so for me, writing as a sacred act is very tied to, to writing about like everyday life and finding that sense of connection. Um, and I think that starts to change the world because it gives us a sense of like our own impact um, and our own, does that make sense? Like kind of rather than feeling like a wall, it's just me, you know, I can't change the world, but it's like, I think when you start to really feel like, Oh, my voice matters. Yeah. Yeah. I think so many people think their voices don't matter. Right. You think so? I do. Um, Mm -hmm. I can tell you the number of things I've read that will just stop me in my tracks and not necessarily from famous people, but you know, just peep random things that I read that will stop me in my tracks Mm -hmm. and make me reflect and think. Um, Yep. Um, You mentioned spirituality and religion. Are you either of those things? Are you a spiritual or religious person? Yeah, I'm both of those things. Um, and that has evolved and, and grown over the course of my life too, but I'm Jewish. Um, that's being Jewish is a big part of my, 
my sense of self and, and also really informs, you know, in terms of my values and some of the ways that I sort of see being in the world. Um, Cause one of the things I love about Judaism is that it's a religion that is really grounded in, in how we live, you know, in, in not just, not just how we pray or what we believe in, but actually how that, how that takes, how that's embodied or manifest in, in the world itself, you know, in our actions, um, in the way we interact with people. So I think I was always spiritual, like even as a kid, um, but I didn't really have a, uh, like I didn't grow up with any Jewish, you know, actual anything you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> like Jewish education or anything. Like I grew up celebrating Christmas and that was kind of it, you know, it was a very secular upbringing. Yeah. And I didn't even really realize I was Jewish um, fully until I was a teenager. And so that has really like taken, you know, decades to kind of take shape. That's how, a big part of my life now. How did that realization come about? You know, it was sort of gradual when I was, I'm trying to think. I mean, I think the biggest catalyst for that was when I was 16 and I went to the Amherst High School. There was a history teacher named Mark Gerstein who passed away of cancer. He was an amazing teacher. Like he was one of those teachers who like really does change your life. Um, I was really lucky to have him. And he taught, he taught us a semester long course in the Holocaust. And it was during that class that I think I had this kind of like, oh my God, like, I'm, you know, like it just kind of, it really woke that up in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then I kind of was a, sort of off on a journey um, from there. And in college, I actually, I I went to school in New York City. So there were a lot of Jews, but I always felt very kind of alienated. Like I just, I didn't know anything. Like I didn't know, I didn't know anything, you know, yeah. I didn't know the prayers. I didn't know the songs. I didn't know, you know about the holidays and you know I tried to kind of go to things sometimes but always kind of left feeling really like I didn't belong and um I ended up working with Russian Jewish immigrants in New York City and the experience of being Jewish in Russia when it was the Soviet Union was kind of similar in a way like you knew you were Jewish but you didn't necessarily know anything about Mm -hmm. being Jewish you know except little bits and pieces from like your grandparents or whatever and so the comp that somehow studying and connecting with that with that population helped me to sort of really dive into figuring out my own Jewish identity Mm -hmm. and on your on your website you mentioned that um you often describe yourself as a as a rabbi at heart. Mm-hmm. And was there a point where you started to learn more about the the Jewish religion? And like can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean it was in that same time frame, um when I was 17, I went to college and the rabbi at who was, she was like the Hillel rabbi um, invited me over for dinner for Shabbat dinner with her partner. And it's the first time I'd ever lit Shabbat candles on a Friday night and been exposed to that. Um, And I, I think that um, it's, it sparks, it sparks something in me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that by the time I was a senior in college, I actually for, I had thought I might go to rabbinical school Mm -hmm. when I was 21. Like it really felt to me like a calling. Um, And then for a lot of reasons, like it just wasn't the path I took. Like it didn't, it just didn't happen. Um, You know, I almost went to Israel and then I didn't go to Israel. Like it just kept being kind of not like just this road not taken. And, um, and then life happened, you know, I, I like, I did other things, but that, that spark though did not go away. Um, so I became, I ended up my first job after grad school. Um, I got an MFA, which seems like, oh, that makes sense. Cause I'm a writer, but really it was because I had no idea what to do. I mean, I was like so lost and that just seemed like, well, grad school, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah I don't think that's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but after grad school, I, the first, the job that I ended up taking, which is how I wound up in Vermont was as the Hillel director at university of Vermont. Mm-hmm. So that was just like sink or swim. I mean, I really, I had like so little knowledge or experience, but there I was like the director, you know? So I just sort of had, I was immersed in it and, um, yeah, just kind of threw myself into like learning. Yeah. And we're, we're a, um, we're an interfaith um, couple. And, you know, for much of my life, I would describe myself, you know, probably as an atheist. As I've gotten older, I'm a little less certain, you know, of uh, cosmically of all of that, <laughs> I'll say. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm beginning to creep up on 50, like faster <laughs> than I want to yeah, admit, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but one thing that I have always had profound respect for are like the kind of um, the rituals that ground Judaism, right? Um, the the concept of the mitzvah, right? Like we we have to take our faith and act it out into the world. Like th- those are things that like I deeply respect and appreciate about Judaism. Um, and you talk about specifically how the values of loving kindness and I'm gonna um, my Jewish my Jewish it? friends help me with this pronunciation <laughs> um, Tikkun Olam. Olam or <laughs> which is known as healing the world um, how those mm. things influence your work mm-hmm. um, and maybe the approaches you take to your coaching and other things can you talk a little bit more about that for us sure um, yeah and back on what you were saying about uh Judaism in action, you know, that, that, Mm -hmm. that, and the rituals and like having that container, you know, like I was just going to say on that and then I'll, and then I'll answer your question. Um, that one of the things I also really value about Judaism is that there's room for doubt. There's room for questions and faith is not actually a requirement. So like, even if you really aren't sure, you know, about like the whole God thing or whatever, it's like, you, there's still a seat at the table for you. Like that's the questioning is integral to it. Um, as opposed to it being dogmatic. Like you have, I mean, of course, if you're, you know, yeah, there's a, there's different <laughs> denominations of Judaism. Oh, we shades of everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But unless you're, an, if, if, you know, I'm not an Orthodox Jew. So, um, you know, in, in that realm, there's room to kind of, there's not only room, but it's like, it's a practice. It's encouraged, you know, to mm-hmm. really like, look at things from different perspectives and, um, 
and question things and, and even kind of rewrite old stories, which I think is so cool. Like, I just think that's really neat. Mm -hmm. So as far as how those values um, kind of inform my work, uh, the loving kindness piece, it's, you know, you may have noticed that a lot of the most prominent Buddhist teachers in America or in the West are Jewish by birth, um, which I think is really interesting and not coincidental. There's actually like so much, there's so much in common, um, I think, between Buddhism and Judaism in ways that a lot of Jews don't even realize. But that loving kindness is a word that I think I tend to associate more with Buddhism, but is actually a Jewish value. Um, and it's, to me, a reminder of just compassion and, you know, having that some just fundamentally that having that um, way of seeing ourselves and, and each other, which can get really lost, you know, it can get, it can get lost for a lot of reasons. And I mean, I say that like really personally, like I can lose that in myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that it changes, it changes things when we remember to come back to that. So that's, yeah, that's part of it. And then the tikkun olam, like repairing the world, it's really, it's, it's kind of like a Jewish mandate. Like I, I see that as like, you know, that's what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a Kabbalah story about a, um, a sacred vessel of light shattering, like at the beginning of the world. And, and the story is that one of those shards of light is in each of us. And so the idea of repair is actually the kind of like, find yours or contribute yours, you know, that together Mm -hmm. we're kind of putting that back together. Mm, And I think that's just such a beautiful image. It's like um, assembling of the light, right? (laughs) Like often, often I hear, often when I, when I hear metaphors about light and darkness, right? Mm -hmm. It's about, um, you know, every little candle lights a piece of the darkness, right? But I like, I love mm-hmm. what you just described to me that, you know, we all hold a piece of this sacred light in us and it's our job to come together and create like a super light. Yeah. A yeah. super light. Yeah. Super light. Yeah, I like that. I love that. Well, and I think, it, I think it ties in too with like all the other stuff we're talking about. Um, where, you know, writing and sharing our stories is one way to do that. Yeah. So in that sense, to me, writing is also really tied in with social, social action, social change, social justice. Yeah. And those, those are things that are really, those are, those are things that are really important to you. Yeah, they are. Can you talk a little bit um, more about that for us? Sure. Yeah. I think those things have always been important to me. Um and hmm, I think the whole thing of, you know, all of our voices matter. Mm-hmm. It's important, you know, context is important and it's important to also look at, you know, whose voices, whose voices do we hear the most of, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, whose voices are making policy, right? Whose voices are, you know, on the school board, you know, it's like all of, I think when you start to talk about voices, it's almost, 
I don't know, impossible or maybe irresponsible, you know, not to look at that within a context too of like equity and um, the intersectionality of that, you know, of looking at race and gender and um, ability and, you know, all the things that Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people and certainly for a lot of white people um, have become more, you know, sort of more prominent on our, in our consciousness over the last four years. But unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, it it took having Trump in office for that to happen. Um, But for better, for worse, like here we are. And I think, you know, to me, it's like, it it also ties really in with Judaism because I think that we really do have, I love that Judaism emphasizes both personal and collective or communal responsibility. so I see that as really inseparable from yeah. from social change. It's so interesting too, because I there's a woman that I'm friends with on Facebook that she's a Christian, but she is not evangelical and she really embodies what I see reflected in a lot of what you were just talking about, but from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. And like I find her to be the most fascinating person. Like that, you know, she really embodies that spirit in a lot of ways that a lot of other quote unquote Christians don't, <laughs> you know, like the mm-hmm. the evangelical hypocrisy um, and things of that nature. Um, yeah. 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 And I think it's interesting. Yeah. I'm reflecting on something Jenna just told us, which is that um, I think in Judaism, maybe faith is less important, right? Mm-hmm. And in some of the, I think, um, uh, more evangelical um, uh, Christian faiths, right? Faith mm-hmm. is the, the most important thing, right? right? And right. and maybe action in the world is de-emphasized. Right. I just find that, that, that's, I just find that to be interesting. Yeah, I mean- Yeah, it is. But like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, there are shades, right? So like, yeah. there are the fundamentalists of any kind of, you know, philosophy that you want to like hone in on that is mm-hmm. can be dangerous. Like even in Judaism, you know, the really orthodox um, side of the culture is, you know, not so great sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like as soon as you're saying you have to do things a certain way. Right. Um, or you're wrong, <laughs> you know, I think that gets problematic very quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's often used, you know, as we see to oppress, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to, and to, um, you know, curtail other people's rights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to just, if I can, just briefly steer us a little back <laughs> towards the writing. And one, yes. of, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Jenna, both as a, as a writing coach and a life coach, um, helping people deal with rejection, right, has got to be a a big, probably a big part of um, your work. That's my assumption. It may not be. But can you talk a little bit about rejection? Sure. I just got one. <laughs> <laughs> I could start there. I got a rejection on Friday from the New York Times Mm -hmm. um, from the Modern Love column, which is like the holy grail of, you know, Mm -hmm. 
personal essay publishing. It's my second one from there. So, you know, I'll probably give it a couple of years before I try again. Um, rejection. I mean, it is just part of it. It is absolutely part of it. And the stories, I love the stories about, okay, like the Queen's Gambit is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, have you watched it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We love that show. Yeah. I loved it too. And I read that it got rejected. I, it was like 13 years that they tried to get this show made and, and everyone was like, no one's going to want to watch a show about chess. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, but he, you know, the, I don't know the guy's name, but it's, you know, he just believed in it and didn't, you know, but imagine like most of us would have thrown that in like after maybe three years. I don't know. Like yeah. how long do you get something, you know? Um, so I think the rejection thing is like, goes back to the resilience thing, you know, in terms of just developing that. I mean, it sucks. Like, yeah. I'm not going to like, you know, kind of sugarcoat it. Like it's, it's disappointing. You know, I, when I personally, when I get rejections, I don't actually send out a ton of work. You know, like I'm such a sharer that I, I don't like, it's not my priority. So it feels great to get published. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, like, it's not my, it's not my main thing that I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting rejections, you know, you go through like a whole you know, a bunch of emotions, like mm-hmm. maybe anger and just like fuckers, like how can they, you know, right? Like you kind of have your whatever, but then at the same time, I think it's, it's, it's good practice. Like it's actually really good practice in developing that resilience and kind of knowing that it is so incredibly subjective, so, so subjective and also competitive, you know? And so if it's important, I would, I would probably want to like zoom out and ask someone like why getting published was important to them. Like to actually even explore that. Cause that to me is in that realm of like defining your own terms, right? you know, and if it is important for reasons that are really rooted and, you know, someone's like something real for someone, um, then I think it's just something like you've just got to take it as part of the territory and I, kind of not let it stop you, you know? Yeah. We were talking like, lick your wounds and keep lick your wounds and, and then send it out again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We were talking to somebody recently who told us, was it um, an artist we talked to recently who said they have a, a rejection nail or something. Mm-hmm. They just, they stick their rejection letters up on a nail it's in their studio and so they can sit there and 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 marvel at them that they're putting Mm -hmm. themselves out there right that is that that is an act worth appreciating yes i mean i think it is because it's like that's that's like it's brave you know i think you to kind of open yourself up to that and it's also like you know you know when people say things like oh i could never go back to school because i'm already however old and then I love the comeback of like, well, how old will you be if you don't do it? You know, and it's yeah. sort of similar with with rejections where it's like, well, if getting published is important to you, you will definitely not get published if you don't submit work. Right. Got to play you know? to win. So it's like, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Who says it's that all the time? Like, why, why can't I just yeah. sit on the sidelines and win? That's how I want to do it. <laughs> I would like that. If you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> 
sounds great. I just want to take a nap, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. I'll get discovered on the couch. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Um, and on your website, which I'm, I'm going to keep mentioning because I want our listeners to go and, and check out your website. And, and I have to say this, um, your website is one of the most welcoming websites I've ever been to. Like, I don't know. It just drew me in uh, the, yeah. the pictures and the, the writing on it, the quote, like it just was a, it felt like a very welcoming space and you don't always see that on websites. I, mm-hmm. as I was going through it, I've made a mental note, like, Oh, I have to tell Jenna this. So <laughs> well, um, thank you. That means that that's amazing to hear. Thanks. That means a lot to me. Sure. I mean, welcome. that's how I yeah. wanted to feel, you know, I wanted to feel like, come in, sit down, you yeah. know, like, let's talk and then, yeah. And, and not some, you know, off putting thing or, yeah. some flashy looking thing or whatever. I mean, for me, it definitely had that effect. So I just, I want to make sure our listeners go and check it out because uh, there's a lot of great stuff on there, including um, a page you have with some of your own um, publications. Um, and I noticed you had um, a book of, a couple of books of poetry up there. Could you tell us just a little bit about your own personal uh, work? Sure. Um as far as the books of poetry, going back to your question earlier, you asked, do people ever write and discover things about themselves that they didn't know? And that actually was true for me. Um, you know, I was, like I said, writing kind of my whole life. But in in my 30s, mid-30s, I started, I, I was writing what I thought was going to be a memoir. Um, and it was around that same time. I started my blog in 2007. My kids were my, my younger, my son was nine months old and my daughter was four when I started blogging. And then that kind of led me back into writing. Cause I really didn't write a lot in my twenties. Um, during those years of being a Hillel director, that was kind of my focus. So I wrote my journal, but you know, the blog was how I sort of started to really develop a writing practice. And that then led me to decide to write a memoir. So I spent like a year and a half, maybe two years working on this memoir, but I could not quite pin down what it was about. Like I had kind of these pieces, you know? Um, And then in 2010, I came out in a way that was very unexpected and sudden, like really sudden and intense and um, kind of seismic. Mm-hmm. And it was the writing that really, I think, kind of like plumbed those depths and primed that in me. So then I was like, oh, that's why I couldn't write this book. Like, it, you know, it turned out like that's the thing that I was kind of writing my way towards was that I think mm. that discovery. So my first collection of poems is called Don't Miss This. And it actually grew out of that experience um, of kind of realizing that I was gay when I was 36 and um, how mm. that, how that changed my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, I mean, um, and some other people's lives too. So um, yeah. So that's, that's the first book that I ended up putting together and self-publishing a couple of years later. Did um, you, did you grapple with that experience in a really direct way in that book or in a, um, was it in a more, um, symbolic kind of way. I guess what I, I think what I'm wondering is would people be able to read that book of poems and 
maybe get a sense of understanding of what mm-hmm. that experience you've described to us, um, you know, as being seismic um, yeah. was was like. I think I think so. I mean, the I ended up I ended up having the book dividing it into three sections. So it was kind of a before, during, and after, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And the before poems in that book, like the first section, I wrote all of those poems over the course of probably like 15 years leading up to that. So actually before I came out. And it and then looking back at them, it was like sort of this uncanny, prescient, like this feeling of like that that had been there all along. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those poems, there's some like almost like foreshadowing. Um, and then the middle section of the book are poems that I wrote kind of in the throes of that, mm-hmm. of that period, which was like a lot of things, you know, it was like confusing and scary and there was grief and there was also like, you know, discovery and, loss and you know just like all the all that stuff was in the middle and then the third section of that book was a little bit of like I don't want to say after because it's not like really none of this was that neat you know um but yeah you you could definitely read that collection and kind of have an experience of that arc I think Hmm. um whereas in real time you know I actually made my blog private for that for probably the year and a half or so, you know, in the immediacy of that, because my family, you know, came apart and my then husband and I separated and we were navigating co-parenting and getting divorced. And, you know, I mean, it was very painful Mm -hmm. and, and not, you know, I still, I needed the outlet of somewhere to write and wanted to be able to connect with people in that way, but also didn't want to like be broadcasting that. So, Yeah. yeah. So that was tricky to navigate. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, and thinking thinking about your work and some of those themes you were just talking to us about your new your newest collection. I think it is. It, it's called "Why I Was Late for the Meeting." Somebody described it as um, equal parts invitation, prayer, protest and love song to the pain and beauty of humanity in everyday life. And I just wanted to say like that last part of that sentence really struck me as I was reading it, because I think we often aspire to trying to live these lives that are free of pain. Right. And um, like, I feel like, I feel like we missed the mark when we, try to live a life that's free of pain instead of accepting that we're going to have some pain in our lives. And that's part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I don't know. I just, I really love that description of the book and it made me want to read it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love to get copies. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Thank um, you. And I totally agree with you that I, about missing the mark, you know, that, um, yeah, God. I mean, I just can't even really like wrap my head around, you know, and I, I know that there's, you know, it's probably a billion dollar industry, right? Like trying to live a life free of pain, but yeah, um, yeah, it's like, there is, it is, it is part of life. You're, you're right. And so is loss, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. there is, I think, I think the more open we are to those, you know, sort of I want to say hard parts and I'm using air quotes, you know, around the hard, um, 
maybe I don't need the air quotes, but I think our capacity for joy is, is kind of also commensurate to our capacity to be with, with, with pain or grief. Yeah. 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 Like they go together. Yeah. And, um, the other thing I just want to tell tell our listeners to do um, is make sure when they're on your website and checking it out, look at your values. Um, you have a section on there about what your values are, right? And um, I really, I really enjoyed reading through those because I think, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, when I think about working with somebody or you know buying a product from a company, I really like seeing what the person or organization's values are because mm-hmm. I very much believe in trying to align myself with people and businesses and supporting those things that, you know, that, resonate with you. Yeah. That at least align with what I think are good right. values. Um, it's, I mean, yeah. it's a great list. It's a long list. Um, and one of the, th- one of the things that jumped out at me was the, um, and I think we've talked about this, is that this value you have listed there, it says, I believe that my humanity is bound up with your humanity, mm-hmm. right? And that, to me, the thing that jumped into my head was the the saying, namaste, right? Mm-hmm. Is it my light sees, is it my light sees your light or something like that? Something I believe. Something like that, yeah. Um, anyways, mm-hmm. I just, anyway, I just, I think I want people to to read through your values mm-hmm. here because I think they're they're really really important. I liked I liked reading them. So I feel um, like it ties in with the uh in a way with the pain piece too because mm-hmm. it's like there's something there about not turning away mm-hmm. like from like my own suffering or yours. You know that that the more we can kind of be with that mm-hmm. um yeah like the more we can actually connect. That brings me into that when you just said namaste and like the that idea that we were talking about earlier about people having light, mm-hmm. the shards of light. Yeah. You know, the shards of light, recognizing the shard of light in you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. So this is, I mean, there's a lot well, about and this. Also that the, sorry, I was just going to say no, the please. other thing about that that I love is that the shard, like it, it was, it's a broken, like it's a broken, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. like, that there's, you know, and that doesn't mean that we're broken. You know, mm-hmm. so there's something about kind of being able to hold that duality of like wholeness and brokenness, you know, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we've been talking, um, uh, and, and I think this is, I think this is related to our conversation. Um, I think the most important book I've ever read in my life keeps popping into my mind during this conversation with for me, which is um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, And mostly because it's a story about a parent and a child kind of navigating these unimaginably horrific circumstances. And, Mm -hmm. And the parent keeps telling the child, like, you must carry the fire of humanity in your heart. Like, no matter how awful things get, you can never give up hope. Like and that's what that's what must drive us forward right. to the next day, right? Right. And I don't know. It just I I love that <laughs> book. I have a whole <laughs> arm tattooed with oh, symbols God. based on it. Um, oh wow! And and to me, it was just like the idea of how important writing can be to us, right? Right. Like I I sat through 
you know, 30 hours of tattoos because of a book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, um, yeah. Oh my God. That's so, yeah. That's so, that's so cool about your tattoos that, that, that was all inspired by that book. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I think I could end up with sleeves if I like, if I sort of went COVID actually slowed things down on that front. Cause we're not going in any tattoo parlors right now, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, but you, you know, the thing about, um, yeah, I mean, hope is God, hope is, is a loaded thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, I think there's something about caring that's again, like carrying each other, you know? So it's like, not everyone has to be hopeful all the time, but if we can take turns at least, or like, you know, enough of us can, can stay connected to that sense of we're here because of the people before us who didn't give up hope and try to connect with a sense of lineage and like knowing that we're part of lineage too, you know, like when I think about, you know, my kids and imagine them having kids or whatever, like someday that I'm going to just be someone in their past. Yeah, except they will have all of this wonderful writing you did too, right? <laughs> That's right. To connect with, yeah, and that will have, like the digital archives. You know, I threw out most of my journals um, at one point when I was. Uh, it was around the time that I was getting divorced because I was like, I don't need these anymore. You know, so they're not going to have all the journals, but they will have. Yeah, probably a lot of my writing. Do you regret that? Do you regret that decision at all? No, I don't. Um, you know, I've certainly like thought about it from time to time, like, wow, that was kind of a big decision. Um, but you know, when I was younger, like in high school, even, I mean, I would just sit, I had this really deep closet in my bedroom and I would sit in the kind of the doorway. There was no door. So I would just sit in that kind of that threshold and like read over my old journals, Mm. you know, like it was this very kind of like, um, I don't know. I, I think that by the time that, that, that I decided to do that, I felt like whatever was in those journals was in me. Like I didn't need to keep going back over yeah. and over and over, mm, you know, yeah. my past. All right. So I want to move us. Um, I want to move us towards wrapping this up. Um, <laughs> I have to ask um, so what, what, what is next? What's on the horizon for Jenna Schwartz? <laughs> If we could even know such a thing. <laughs> if I could even know such a thing. <laughs> um, it's a very good question. And I'm in this interesting period of very much sitting with not having a big answer to that question and kind of knowing that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm working with that in myself, like, cause I love having a big, I like having a big answer to that question. Like who, you know, it's, it's fun to be able to be like, Oh, next is, you know, what I can tell you is that I have a collection of writing prompts um, that basically grew out of all those early writing groups I led um, in the first two or three years of doing this work. Um, you know, I wrote 10 new prompts a month for like two or two or three years. So it's a lot of prompts and they were all created for online groups. So they were, you know, emails with links and photos and stuff, but I've 
basically kind of transposed those into book form. And that's right now in the hands of an editor. Oh, cool. Um, and so what's next is I would, if any agents are listening <laughs> to the podcast and they want to get in touch with me, you know, I would really, my dream would be to, to have an agent, um, want to work with me on finding a publisher for that. You know, I would love to ultimately, like I will self-publish that book if that's kind mm-hmm. of how things unfold, but I would really, really like to have, um, a, you know, kind of commercial publisher pick that up. So that would be really cool. So that's, that's in the works. Um, I have a couple other kind of ideas up my sleeve right now. I wrote a piece the day after the inauguration that I'm kind of sitting on. And I mean that almost like in the sense that like, you know, a bird sits on an egg, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's, it, it hasn't hatched yet, but I have a couple ideas for um, forms that that might take kind of in the world. So, yeah, other than that, I'm I'm really loving what I'm doing right now and kind of at peace with letting it continue to just deepen and grow. Mm-hmm. And I, I try, you know, I can easily get caught up in, I've written a ton about this, but just kind of the pressure, which at this point is really just internal, like no one's telling me this, you know, but to kind of do something bigger or do something, you know, do something new, do something different, you know, and we're, I feel like I, as much as anyone can get kind of like swept away with novelty. And um, right now I'm really, I'm really in a place of just kind of letting my roots in what I am doing deepen rather than feeling like there's got to be a a big new thing. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Even just saying that was beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) I know I have an image in my head. Well, it goes together with like just letting things be enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like we don't always have to be like striving. Um, Like it's okay just to let things kind of, you know, I also have two teenagers. So that's kind of like what's next is like getting my daughter off to college next Mm -hmm. year. And, you know, my son's in high school and yeah, my wife's actually also a college student. So, you know, part of what's next too, is just that I'm, you know, my role as a wife and mother are very central to my life too. Yeah. Um, so what do you like to do? Um, that's not related to writing or wifing or mothering. What do you, uh, just for yourself, like what are the things you like to do to, for fun. Um, for fun, sort of. I like to snuggle with my bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I like to bake chocolate chip cookies. I do bake a lot. Like baking is kind of one of my like ways of decompressing. Um, and I, it's funny, fun. It's, I loved your, your music at the beginning or your little intro about, you know, lightening up, like mm. doing mm-hmm. this for fun. And I was like, fun. Oh, right. Like, what, <laughs> what, what is this thing you speak of? <laughs> yeah. The irony. And I've said this to Jen so many times, I say that in such an angry way. I feel like I need to record it because I didn't mean it to sound angry. <laughs> like, you know, for fun. Yeah. yeah but for fun. I also, um, I, I've always, I mean, I've been running since I was like, I don't know, 18 or something, just like little, like two mile runs. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, I started running. Like, I think it just became kind of how I was coping with, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. all of it. And I ended up running a lot last year. Like Me a too. lot. A lot. 
I started um, running. It, yeah, I started running again during the pandemic. I go four nights a week now, like three point really? five miles. Um, awesome. Yeah. yeah. So that I do that actually. Like that is a thing. I just took about a month off because my body really was telling me to take a, mm-hmm. a real break. Because um, I ran. I mean, I ran like two half marathons last year just by myself. Oh you know? goodness. And, yeah, like really a lot of running. Um, but I actually just, I think because it's getting springy, um, and I just threw it, I was like, forget it. Like it's icy and cold and I just want to be inside and, you know, watch Netflix or whatever. But I, I can feel that waking back up in me. And so I'm working on a new playlist because I'm so sick of the one that I listened to like a thousand times last year. Um, so that's kind of fun for me. That's awesome. Um, last question, I promise. Um, (laughs) And sure. this this one, if you um, we always tell people this, you can interpret it any way you want. And not having an answer is okay too. Um, okay. What have you experienced um, that you feel you cannot explain? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. And yeah, I could see how you could. I can think of the different sort of levels I could answer that on. <clears throat> I mean, like I can't explain the internet, for example, you know, <laughs> I don't think anybody can. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Like if you want to go kind of like, you mm-hmm. know, no, that's a literal. perfectly good answer. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. But in a more serious way. I yeah. mean, honestly, I marvel at like the way my whole life has unfolded, you know, like I mm-hmm. don't, I feel like it's really, there's so much mystery to that. Um, And I'm kind of glad, like, I, I'm glad that we can't explain everything. Like to me that that's, yeah. like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think science is really fucking cool. Like I, you know, I'm glad for the explainers, but (laughs) I also, I think I like that realm of kind of the inexplicable. I love it. Because it makes me feel like there's, like you said about the, you know, that you were questioning a little bit your atheism, you know, kind of the cosmic sense. And um, I think there's a lot that we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Are you? Yeah, I am. (laughs) He's constantly on the lookout for aliens and (laughs) Sasquatches and. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay I'm okay with an answer saying we don't need to explain everything either. Yeah. Right. That's and it's okay that, that they're, no, it's no. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's okay to be yeah. in the, it's okay to be in the not knowing and in the mystery. Yeah. 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 Sometimes the there's, some freedom, there's some freedom in that. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why does, why does the water flow around the ro- rock to the left versus the right? Who knows? Yeah. That's you like may never know. That Iris Dement song, Let the Mystery Be. Yeah. From The Leftovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now it's stuck in my head. All right. <laughs> well, Jenna Schwartz, I have enjoyed speaking to you. Um, I really, I learned a lot. I thought about a lot of stuff very deeply. <laughs> Sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that just struck me as really funny. <laughs> Thank you. We really yes. appreciate you um, being here tonight. Geez, stomping Jen. I'm sorry. I didn't I mean to really, ruin his flow. 
Yeah, that was a good flow, but the laughter is actually so great. Like, we need to laugh. I need to laugh more. It's, like, really good medicine. And I appreciate you both just being so, speaking of welcoming, like, really, thank you for welcoming me onto your show and for putting me so at ease. Because I, I actually, I told Jen this morning, I was, I was actually kind of nervous. And I practiced a little bit with my daughter before I was like, they're going to ask me to introduce myself, you know, (laughs) thank you for um, for helping me feel relaxed. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for saying all that and for putting yourself out there. This, this, I mean, this, you know, this is not a a natural thing for everybody. So, um, and you are great. I I really enjoy talking to you and, and, and felt at ease. Um, I always get a little nervous before every conversation myself. So. Yeah, I think um, it's a good nervous. I get that way with when I'm meeting yeah. with a new client. And I think it's just like a way of being like, oh, you know, I'm alive. This mm-hmm. is new, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So thank you. Um, our listeners. Yes. Now listen closely. Yes. Um, what do I want to say? You want to say share, subscribe, oh, right. download, yeah. all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, please go check out um, Jenna Schwartz's website, um, right. especially if you are... Um, a writer or somebody, um, you know, just looking for a coach for maybe other things in your life too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, or you're looking for a book to read. Yep. Um, <laughs> check out Jenna's website. Do yeah. that first, please. Or if you're um, an agent and want to publish some books. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and also, listeners, yes. Um, please subscribe, download, leave us a review. Share with a right? friend. Share with a friend. Yeah. We like all of that. Find us on social media. Engage with us there. Yep. Um, and finally, we love you. We've got a mix of so you keep beating me to it <laughs> that's, now. That's because you made a point of saying I don't say it. That's true. Yeah, but you, do you want to say it? That's oh the question. Because <laughs> I want to. All right. We love you. Right. We love you. Wear Listen, a mask. Wear a mask. We're almost through this thing. Yes. Right. We're almost there. So. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. What do we say? Um, so, um, Jenna, do you want to say goodbye? <laughs> um. Well, I love you too, <laughs> listeners <laughs> out there. Yeah, definitely about the mask and getting through this thing. Oh my God. Like it's going to end. It's going to change. It's not going to last forever. Yep. Um, yeah. And just, I, I'll i just repeat my little tagline, but you know, the, um, the be good to yourself part, especially. Yeah. Be good to yourself. Yeah. yeah I love that. Let's end there. Um, right. So okay. bye now. Bye and. Now. Be good to yourselves. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 